Hi, and welcome to Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. Author of Remembered, I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. I'm a writer, host, presenter, academic, and a reader. I love being read to. In each podcast episode, a writer will read to us and answer three questions. We might talk about how they developed the characters, the sense of place, why they wrote the book, something they learned through research, and more. Ultimately, through each episode, I hope to get to know each author a little more, and I hope that you do too. Each episode is about 30 minutes. You'll find the author's bio and a bit about the book below the episode. Thanks for joining in. So, thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. We're joined today by Erica Bornman, who will be reading to us from and talking about her book, Mission of Malice, My Exodus from Quasi Ubuntu, winner of the InfoCult Diane Kusuni Award. So first, congratulations on the award. Thank you so much. And it's so wonderful to be here. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for saying yes. I'm so excited to have you. I'm really looking forward to talking to you and, of course, hearing you read. So thank you for joining us for the episode. <laughs> so shall we dive right in? Great. Thank you. So can you t- please tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write it? Sure thing. The book is a memoir. It's my memoir of growing up in an evangelical community in South Africa. Um, During the time of apartheid, I was a little girl um, and it was this multiracial utopia, except it wasn't. It actually is a very destructive cult. And I ran away at the age of 21 and three years later realized that what I had experienced was abuse. And with that knowledge came the responsibility for trying to save the children that are still growing up there. And so for the last 20 odd years, I've been trying to get South African authorities interested to investigate this place. I went quiet for a while. Um, but then in uh, two years ago, I spoke to News24, which is South Africa's premier um, online news organization. They did an extensive investigation into this place, launched Exodus, which was a documentary, a podcast, and lots of articles. And then on the back of that, I got a book deal. I always knew I was going to write a book, but I always thought it would, I would write it when, after my mother had died. I even had the first sentence in my head. It was, they buried my mother today. I wasn't there. But uh, spoiler alert, my mother's still alive and I wrote the book. And I wrote the book. I, I've been writing this book for 20 years, except I didn't know that I was writing it. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow. What an incredible amount of dedication and patience and perseverance that you had to, to be an activist for over 20 years and then to have this opportunity to say, yeah, I'm going to write this book now. So can we hear a bit of the book, please? Yes. Also, I did go quiet for about 15 years and I think I was still healing and because I had spoken out and nobody paid any attention. So I kind of disappeared, but then I came back. <laughs> so we're going to start um, when I'm already at the at the mission, Kwasi Zabantu, we call it Kwasi Zabantu or KSB or the mission. 
And um, this is me at 10 years old. Uh, my parents left me there. They went off to France to go and learn French because my dad was a missionary. Anyway, let's, let's start. It's chapter seven. Jesse learns a lesson. Fear. What an inadequate word for what we experienced. If I were to write starting a cult for dummies, a huge section would be devoted on how to instill fear. And there would be an entire chapter or three on public beatings. They're an excellent tool for controlling your followers. I've made a friend at the mission. Let's call her Jessie. It's not a real name, but it's a name I love and I love her too. So it feels appropriate to call her that. She doesn't go to my school, but her parents live at the mission and we sometimes play together in the afternoon. Well, I don't know about play exactly, but we're sometimes together. Come to think of it, I don't actually recall playing per se. I don't really know how I whiled away the time when I wasn't reading or in a church service or in the upper room. I guess that room got its name because you have to climb a set of stairs to get to it, or maybe because it's grandiose. Also, the upper room sounds like the kind of place where you'd have the Last Supper if you were modeling yourself on Jesus and his disciples. The floor is carpeted. I know because I sit on that floor quite often. There is another room next to it that's tiled, but I don't remember going in there very often. The room is supposed to be a meeting place. The co-workers, that's what the upper echelon of this community call themselves, regularly meet there. They're adults though. When the kids are called in, you know there's trouble. We get summoned there when someone has done something wrong and they are going to be punished. And so I write about how Jesse had been seen stealing toffees and that we were called there that day because she had been she someone had snitched on her that she had stolen toffees this is what brings us to the upper room today an adult takes the floor let's call her jenny because that is her real name and she is still there in 2020 jenny will testify at a commission convened to investigate human rights abuses at ksb she will say that Casby is a wonderful place filled with only good people and that any allegations of abuse are lies. I'm prevaricating because what happens next is simply too awful. There is a piece of orange plumbing pipe that the adults use to beat us kids. Jenny brandishes the pipe. No, she declares. This sin is too grievous to warrant a simple beating. She softly gives an instruction to a man we'll call David because that's his real name too. May he rest in peace. Jenny places the orange pipe on the banister and David disappears down the stairs. He returns holding a large butcher's knife. The Bible teaches us that thieves get their hands cut off, Jenny pontificates. I have turned to ice. This cannot be happening. My friend is going to lose a hand, maybe both hands. Choose, Jenny commands, looking at my friend. The knife or the pipe? Neither Jessie nor I can remember what she said or even if she spoke at all. Today, more than 40 years later, Jessie doesn't remember the beating that ensued. Her brother does, as do I. We remember it well. She was given a savage beating, the adults impervious to her screams. I'm forced to look at her, I'm not allowed to look away and I'm not allowed to cry. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> that's not in the book. I am not allowed to show any emotion at all, because if I do, I will be next. In a way, perhaps it's good that Jessie doesn't remember. This is what terror and trauma do. They leave black holes in your memory. Jessie dissociates because staying inside her body is too unbearable. 
Don't confuse these beatings with the hidings you might have got as a kid. I got hidings from my parents. Sometimes they used their bare hands, sometimes a stoky slipper. These beatings are something else. One adult holds down the child's upper body or arms on the floor, and another holds down the legs, while a third administers the beating. And it carries on and on. This is not six of the best. It's a sustained assault on a minor child. I'm so terrified of this happening to me that I become a little shadow who never warrants a second look. As a result, as far as I remember, I never get beaten in public. I'm way too scared to ever do anything wrong. I can get away with talking to a boy at school, but I'm not going to do that here. I get good at deception, especially because I fake normalcy at school and pretend everything is okay back at Kwasisabantu. I'm 10 years old. What recourse do I have? I have no choice but to believe all the threats of damnation I'm fed on a daily basis. I live with fear for so long that I sometimes think it has played a bigger part in forming who I am than my parents ever did. They left to go and learn French so that they could save people when the people who needed saving the most were their three children. Oh, Erica. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Just thank you so much for, for sharing it and for, um, of course, for writing it. And so I wanted to, so my question would be, if you could please tell us a bit about what it was like to write this book, especially knowing that the organization, your family, um, previous or past members would potentially read the book and have strong reactions to your writing it. Well, I didn't tell many people that I was writing the book. It was during lockdown. Um, and um, I also was, I am a little bit scared of that place. You know, um, I'm not their favorite person. And, but the few people that I did tell every now and again, someone would say to me, oh, it must be so cathartic. It must be so healing to write this. And I said to my therapist, the next person who tells me that I'm going to actually punch them because it felt like torture. It really, it was, of course, afterwards, it, it's cathartic. And I realized it was healing. But at the time, I literally spent six months bawling my eyes out. It it was unbelievably hard. I was very lucky. I am very lucky to have my brother's full support. He read the entire manuscript and, and, and gave me his input. Um, um, he, he, uh, corrected some memories. Like I thought our one house was right next to the church. He said, no, there was actually a yard in between. And then he Google imaged me the, the map to show, you know, what was where and that. So, so that was fantastic. And also there are a few characters in the book, Jesse, Telempilo, Tandy. Um, and I, they read what I wrote about them because I was very clear that, of course, the people at the mission didn't read the book, but everybody else who I mentioned in the book got to read the book. You see, books have always saved me. I wanted this book to be a, a, a hope, a, a beacon of hope. So I, I had so many reasons for writing it. The first is to really make South Africa sit up and take note of this place because they are extremely powerful. They have the biggest bottling, water bottling factory in South Africa belongs to them. They, they are hugely influential and powerful and wealthy and they are horrific and abusive. And the other thing was that I, know so many of my peers left and are still hurting so badly. And I thought if I could somehow just write what helped me, it might help them as well. But it was 
awful. <laughs> it was really so hard. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad I did it though. I think that's wonderful because I think you're right that writing life is often it's it's a lot harder than I think some people imagine it to be and when they do feel when they say like how um, cathartic it must be to, you know it's, and you think about it and it's actually you're reliving it and then questioning your memory and questioning perception and all these different things and like how can that be you know easy but thankfully you do speak to a therapist and I think I'm just thankful that you have that because the page is not a therapist. No. Oh. no, it can definitely it can definitely help you. And and you know, I look at things that I wrote thirty years ago or twenty years ago, and and I can I recognize the me that was then, and I'm so grateful that I wrote it down because it reminds me how far I've come. You know, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Could we have another reading, please? So um, I then, at the age of 21, ran away from Kwasi Sabantu, um, and I'm taking you to the middle of the book now. Um, I'm skipping huge sections. Uh, suffice to say that my mother disowned me, um, my sister disowned me, and um, so the only family member I really have is my brother and then some aunts and uncles who are absolutely wonderful. So we are going to Chapter 41, The Living Dead. In late 1997, my mother sends me a book she has written. We're still in touch sporadically. She calls maybe once or twice a year. I always call her on Mother's Day and her birthday. The book is titled Die Stilgemaakte Hart, The Silenced Heart. It's a slim treatise on widowhood as depicted in the Bible. She opens the book by writing about how bad she feels for the way she treated my dad, telling a story of how he ran inside from the garden one day to show her something and how she was more worried about the muddy footprints he was leaving on the floor than sharing in his delight. She writes about how, after he died, she begged God to forgive her for how cruelly she treated him and how God had mercy on her and forgave her. My mother is a good writer and I find myself engaged in the book despite my lack of enthusiasm for its subject matter. She takes various widows from the Bible and pontificates about their lives. It's basically a sermon, but in book form. I don't get a mention, but my brother does. And it is so unkind that it slices through my heart and leaves a wound I don't think has ever healed. My mother writes about a widow in the Bible who loses two sons on the battlefield. She says she knows how that widow feels because her own son is the living dead. The living dead. Chris, my brave, handsome, golden brother, who has tried time and again to soften her heart towards us. My mother compounds her cruelty by sending him a copy of the book so that he can read what his mother thinks of him, so that he can know that she considers him the living dead and that she grieves for him as if he's no longer alive. She erases him just like that from her life in one sentence. It's easier for me to ignore all the ways she's hurt me, but I cannot let this go. I am appalled, not so much at her description of him, because that's the way they all think over there, but that she could send her son a copy of the book, knowing that he will read the words she has written about him. I don't trust myself to speak to her, so I write her a letter instead and keep a copy for myself as a reminder, just in case I ever waver again and think Kwasisabantu isn't as bad as all that. The letter is handwritten and in Afrikaans. Here's what it says. Mama. I have just reread Die Stilgemaakte Hart and I have so many questions. Will Esther also write two books about her daughter and son when it's too late? 
Will she also confess her guilt that she tried to push them into a mold and then rejected them when they wouldn't fit? Will she write about the times her son and daughter pleaded with her to soften her heart, but that she was so blindly focused on her ideas of right and wrong that she forgot how to love? Will she then write about how she trampled on the terms tolerance and unconditional love with her unyielding stubbornness? How she caused irreparable damage to her son, who loves her deeply by viewing him as the living dead? Will Esther then ask herself who gave her the right to make decisions about another's salvation, why she made herself God over her kids' lives? Will she only then realize how deeply she hurt her two youngest children, so deeply that they lost all desire to see her? Next follows the question, where will Esther find a God to forgive her then? Erica. I post the letter but never get a response. I cannot abide having that book in my home, but I also cannot imagine allowing anyone else to read it. I decide to follow Quasisabanti's example. They've shown me what to do with evil objects. The time has come for me to hold my own private fire service. Samuel helps me light a fire and I burn my mother's book, together with photographs of my time at Quasisabanti. I burn her reality of her children in those pages and the emaciated, non-emancipated version of me in the pictures. I am no longer Erica, daughter of Esther. I will always be my dad's daughter and Chris's sister, but I cannot comprehend this cruelty, and I'm finally starting to understand that I will never be able to heal the rift between us. Samuel holds me in a tight embrace as we stand watching the flames lick and consume my past. (laughs) It's so, it's so weird to read these words out loud, you know, a year after they were published and you can hear I'm getting all emotional. Um, just, just reading it. Um, I don't read my book, my own book, uh, very often. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's a powerful book. And so I'm not surprised that reading it will touch you and just, bring back like what it was to live it or what it was to write it or what it was like to let it go so I mean Mm -hmm. I think emotions are you know a beautiful thing and so thank you for sharing them with us yeah thank you so my final question is what if anything has changed since you wrote the book in 2021 and what would you like to happen next well, the good thing is that the, the authorities are finally investigating the place at a snail's pace. It's extremely frustrating because the investigation has now been going on for two years and we still haven't got the, the report. But encouragingly, at least they are investigating this place. I've, of course, been made out to be a complete liar. My mother denounced me from the pulpit. My sister has testified against me. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's hard, but, um, I do believe that hopefully my book has also stopped some people from joining the place in the first place. And that's, that you can't quantify. But I think that's also a really important aspect to it. Um, also, many people have reached out to me and said that, that they've never been in a cult, but they could identify with so many things that I that I wrote about. You know, um, I touch on things like coercive control um, and just not quite knowing your place as a woman, not finding your place as a woman. Um, and, yeah, so... I don't know. I, I don't know. Not enough has changed. The, the honest That's my honest feeling is not enough has changed. I don't think enough people have 
paid attention. And I mean, I would love for there to be some international scrutiny because maybe South Africa will actually pay attention if, if some international people go, hang on, what's this about? But yeah. <laughs> One can only hope. Um, yes. So where can we buy the book? So um, in South Africa, I always encourage people to support their um, independent local bookstores. <laughs> but that's a bit tricky for me overseas. <laughs> so um, as much as I don't like to support them, Amazon kind of is the one place that I know you definitely can get the book. Also, it's on Audible and Kindle. Um, I know there are some hard copies floating around the US and the UK. I, I'm just not sure how many. Um, but yes. <laughs> oh, Erica, thank you so much for joining us today, for reading to us and talking to, to us about your experience of writing it and, and the book. And it's just, you know, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Bookable Space. If you don't already have the book and want to read more, buy it, borrow it from your local library, read it, and if you enjoy it, review it if you haven't already. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon with your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. Follow me on Twitter at YBattlefelton, on Instagram on why I write Battlefelton for pictures, interview insights, and more. <laughs>